Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the first book from Faith Matters Publishing is now available. It's called All Things New and was written by Fiona and Terrell Givens. When I finished the book, I just thought this has so much potential to actually change lives. They go through and trace the roots of our religious vocabulary and show how so many of these words have become totally unmoored from their original foundation and how a lot of those traditions have been carried forward for hundreds and even thousands of years and are in a lot of ways still damaging us today. And then they dive into how we can reformulate our language in healthy and inspiring ways. This book is so healing. It's hopeful. It's a totally paradigm shifting book that you will not be able to put down. You can pick up a copy for yourself or for friends and family. It's available at Desert Book on Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. We're so grateful for Terrell and Fiona and all of the amazing work that they've done here. All right, that's all for the book for now, but we have a lot more to come. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hi, everybody. This is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. In this episode, Terrell Givens speaks with Claudia Bushman. Claudia is truly an original. She's fearless, straightforward, and has an incredible passion for discovering and passing on stories of Latter-day Saint women. She's been the animating force behind several landmark publications and projects in women's history. In this conversation, Claudia urges women in the church to be similarly bold and creative in asserting their place and bringing their gifts to the faith. This is a delightful conversation with one of the most remarkable Latter-day Saint women of our time, and we hope that you enjoy it. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Terrell Givens. I have as my guest today one of my most beloved friends and most admired scholars in the church, Claudia Bushman. And uh, we go back a long ways and uh, I have a great love for this grand lady and am really appreciative that she was willing to come on and talk with us today. So, Claudia, how are you? Well, I think I'm pretty well. It's been a good day in lots of ways and of course one of the ways is that I just got my shot my second shot so I'm vaccinated completely now of course I'm waiting for the reaction so far it hasn't set in but uh, that's done so that's pretty good the other great thing and I'm just going to say because I have this opportunity is that my third great-grandchild was born today and this is a little English boy uh, he was, um, he's born to my first granddaughter, Helena Bushman, and that is part of my English family. And not only is he an English boy, but he is destined to be a peer of the realm. Is that, that not impressive? He that is, is impressive. He is the ninth Baron Tarrington. His grandfather, his other grandfather is the eighth, and, uh, or is the seventh. And his father, Jack Woodhouse, is the eighth. And so this little boy, John, no, James Richard Montague Woodhouse <laughs> is the ninth baron. How about that? Well, congratulations on that. And I know Helen, Helena, we, uh, we were together in a summer seminar a few years ago. She's an absolutely delightful, wonderful young woman. So uh, congratulations to her and to you both. Thank you. Well, Claudia, we have a, a lot of ground we could cover today. You've led and are living, continue to live such a distinguished and active life. 
So I'm not sure where we where we should begin, really. Um, many of our listeners and viewers will be familiar with you in a general way, and, and some maybe in more detail, but I'd like to go over <clears throat> some of the highlights of your life and some of the major contributions that you've made to the field of Latter-day Saint studies and, and women's history and related issues. You've been at the forefront of a number of really historic initiatives and accomplishments in those areas. And I wonder if you would mind rehearsing some of those. You've probably done that a number of times in other venues and for other audiences, but um, you, you graduated from Wellesley. You, uh, received your PhD from Boston University in, was that in American studies? Is that right? Yes, but it was going to be literature, but that's another story which you may not want. But well, yeah, so you and I might have had even more overlap in our interests and backgrounds than well, we did. All right, I'll tell you how it happened. Yeah. I went to uh, BU. Uh, Richard won his uh, Bancroft Award um, prior to, uh, you know, after we'd been married a few years. And um, there was a very great event that took place at Columbia University where he received that um, honor. And then he was from then on um, uh, a hot, hot prophet. Yeah. <laughs> so he was a highly, uh, um, <laughs> I can't, and he, a number of people wanted to hire him, but the most active person was the chairman of the history department at Boston University. And uh, he did not want, we were in Boston for that year on sabbatical leave. And uh, Sidney Burrell, who was the man, was very friendly and very warm and uh, kept um, coming on with more and more better things. And um, so uh, Richard didn't want to go to Boston University because he felt obligated to go back to BYU where he was, both financially and spiritually and all those things, as we know. And uh, however, he finally decided it would be a good thing to do. And Sid was just thrilled. And so he, um, I said, well, Sid, I want to go, I want to get into a doctoral program in English. He says, I'll see that you get in. And of course, he put some pressure on the English department to let me in. I already had my uh, master's degree from BYU when we'd been out there before. And, um, but uh, the chairman of the English department did not really want me there, was very unenthused about admitting okay. such a person. This was before old ladies were going back, even young old ladies were going back to college. And I remember him saying in a plaintive voice, oh, Mrs. Bushman, why don't you just stay home with your children? But, um, which you could never get away with now, but uh, he did. And so, but meanwhile, and this is too long, but anyway. Oh, no, wait, let me just, let me just pause you a minute there. What, what was your particular interest or where was your love of literature centered at that time? Oh, English, you know, um, from the 19th century Amer uh, English novels were my favorite at that point. However, I was moving over almost entirely to American stuff. And so I had that in my mind. But anyway, uh, so English then required four languages. Is that what they required of you when you went to graduate school? Three two languages. And two modern. And I had one of each, but, and I was taking Latin in night school, which is a crazy thing to do. Anyway, Richard came home from a meeting of the American Studies program, which he had um, was involved in organizing. 
And uh, he said, we've talked and talked and tried to decide why we should ask for more than one language. And we just couldn't think of any good reason to do it. <laughs> and it was at that point that I changed my allegiance to American studies. That's how <laughs> life goes. And it certainly went for me. So I learned all different things and I became an American since then. Well, you've been very productive in, in that career, both teaching and writing, publishing a number of uh, important books and studies. Um, there seems to be a kind of common thread to much of your um, life as a scholar, uh, as well as a, as a Latter-day Saint. And, and that's, it, would you agree that, that you have felt a particular affinity for and desire to uh, bring hidden voices out of obscurity and darkness and, and celebrate kind of the unsung heroes uh, of, the, of the church and of our own history? I wouldn't have thought to say it so poetically, Terrell, but um, I do like the individual, the personal stories. And I think, um, I think that is one of the best things. I mean, secondary works are all very well. But of course, what we've learned at BU and which was very interesting, and I, um, it was very valuable for me. It was two major things. One is we used all new sources. If there was any kind of a statistical source like a city block or a, a telephone directory or um, some kind of membership list, we used those things. We used all kinds of stuff that we never would have consulted before. Lots of junk we used as a source. Yeah, yeah. That was one and the other was um, what was the other thing that we did? Oh, yes. One of my other major interests is historical husbandry. So I was, um, because I was so far behind in graduate school from other people, I thought, well, I will study the lives of women. I will use my own life as um, something to measure them against. And so uh, I will consider women's work, women's lives. And so that's how... Um, and so while I was in graduate school, I did lots of projects like learning to spin and weave and make cheese and um, butter and soap and all that kind of thing, because I just wanted to know what the processes were like. So, yeah, I like real life and things of that sort. So do you think there's anything about your training or your background in the church or any particular aspects of our doctrine or theology that has made you, that has sensitized you uh, to the dignity and importance of, of work and voices that have been so little recognized in the past? Or is that just a personal kind of direction you took, you think independently of that background? I think it was really a personal one. I had no, I didn't think as grandly as you do. It's just something that I could do because it was where I was, you know. But I, you have to use what you've got. Yeah, yeah. Start in on anything new. So. Yeah. And uh, but um, but I really do like them. Um, yeah. Well, when the yeah, go on. What? Well, I was just going to say when the history of this era is is retold. Um, and of the, the tremendous leaps forward that we have made as, a, as an institution in the area of women's history in particular, right? Your name will probably appear first among the ranks of those responsible. So, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why you're so loved and celebrated. 
So talk to us a little bit about some of those projects that you launched and were responsible for. I, so, so tell us a little bit about the, the famous pink issue of Dialogue, I think, where, and was that your first real foray into women's studies and, and uh, trying to achieve greater representation for women's voices? Well, I certainly do love projects of all kinds, and that certainly is, a, is from the church. I get it from the church. I get it from the way my mother worked in the church. My mother was always conceiving an idea up here and then building a foundation below and persuading people to join her in doing that. And she was able to do lots and lots of things, mostly artistic things. And I just... Uh, I feel that as a major part of my church life, a lot of the projects I do outside of the church now, I still consider church work because it's the kind of thing I do. I just like to make something out of it. And um, the women's business was originally, we started in, um, Laurel called a bunch of people together, Laurel Ulrich, and uh, said, let's just talk about our lives as Mormon women. So what year would this have been, 1960? late, but I can't tell you at this point again. Okay. Yeah. And then we just did that for a while. Then she actually moved away, uh, but we kept on. Uh, she went up to New Hampshire and, and uh, her husband was uh, took a job there and she began to go to graduate school there. But uh, we kept doing projects and she would come down and work with us for those projects. She in England was coming to visit. Right. And, and we he- had already done a few little projects. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, this is, a, this is something. Maybe we can persuade Jean to let us do an issue. So we were walking in uh, Harvard Yard, actually, up and down, and I screwed my courage to the sticking point, you know, and I said, Jean, we got these, uh, a lot of smart, underused women. How about letting us do an issue of dialogue? He did not hesitate a second. Great, go ahead, do it. <laughs> as you know, one of Gene's great things, he's always asking me to do things I have no idea I could or should or was able to do. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, then you do them. And uh, so he had no problems with that. So we started in on that issue. And, uh, and uh, it took a long, long time. It took a long time for us to do it. But we, because we all worked together, we all did all the things that we do. And when we finally turned uh, our issue in, you may know all this, but uh, the new editor didn't like it. He said, uh, said this does not deal with real LDS female issues. I said, yes, it does. These are all the things that we are really interested in. Yeah. He said, oh, no, these are not the issues. I said, what are? He said, patriarchy and polygamy. <laughs> And, uh, you know, those weren't exactly, I guess we could have made something out of patriarchy then, but we didn't really. It wasn't the front bit burner issue then. So uh, they were not going to publish it. How about that? What was the most popular issue that Dialogue has ever done? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's probably the most famous issue in their history. Full of great stuff. But anyway, eventually he went um, went along with it. It came around. <laughs> so so how did we get from there to Exponent 2? Well, and we kept doing the, all these things. So we'd done these things. And then I came home um, from one of our events, I remember, and I said, um, 
you know, Richard, everything we touch turns to gold. We just cannot fail. We just do one wonderful thing after another. What should we do next? He said, well, why don't you start a newspaper? He was thinking of the woman's exponent. Uh, we knew about the woman's exponent and we had considered every now and then that we should do um, some kind of a thing or that we could, but you know, that's pretty big undertaking for a bunch of housewives with lots of little kids and breakfast to put on and so on. So um, I went to, to one of the next meetings and uh, we were saying, well, what should we do next? And I said, Richard says we ought to do a newspaper. He said, yes, that's it, let's do a newspaper. And this was a great thing because we actually had in our group a person who had been a reporter for a newspaper. And uh, she had one child was expecting another, but she was also president of the Relief Society. And she really wanted to do it, but she said, I just can't do all these things. So I'm going to ask the bishop if he'll release me from my job in the release state. But he wouldn't do it. Can you believe it? She asked for release. He said, no, you've got to keep your job. And so I came back and uh, we had another meeting and it was reported that uh, Stephanie couldn't do it. And so Carol Sheldon, who is a real mover and shaker in our group, turned to me and said, well, you'll just have to do it. And I said at this point, I was still working on trying to get these articles into shape for our book, Mormon Sisters. I said, well, can't we just wait until we get the book done? I said, no, we have to start right now. And so we did. We started right then. And um, we began to do our newspaper, which was also a great, great thing. There was yeah. a job that almost everybody in our group really loved and could do and work on. Was that was my 1974, and uh, Exponent 2 is still around, right? That's right, more than 40 years later. How about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good record. It's uh, much uh, better looking than it was then. At that point, it was very important to us that we make it cheap. So we did it on newsprint and had a $5 a year subscription price. It's now 50 bucks. Wow. <laughs> Those things evolve and grow and change. Isn't it wonderful? So... You know, I, I I don't mean to just be pouring on the commendations, but it, but again, Claudia, it, it seems to me that especially in this encounter that you had with the subsequent editor, that that you've maintained a kind of insistence that feminism isn't going to be narrowly defined. And and so again, correct me if if I'm misreading you, but it seems that part of what you've been saying through these years is women's issues are whatever issues are, are, are important to women in any it given moment context. Right, those women. And those were just not our issues. And I just thought, how presumptuous for him to tell us what our issues were. Yeah, exactly. And so you can be a scholar and you can publish books and teach at, at Columbia. And then in the year 2000, you can win the Mother of the Year Award, right? And there's no... <laughs> It's, it's not an either or, right? It's oh, a, you make it look a lot better than it is. Mother <laughs> of the year is really a funny honor, but um, I use it because it's so great in the context. Well, so you, and you've continued this in this same kind of vein all the way through your time at Claremont, right? Where you, you launched another project, right? Which was the, the Women's Oral yeah. History Project. And that's because somebody 
heard a report that I gave on a women's studies class I was teaching in one of the um, executive meetings, one of the visitors, the board person. And uh, she came up afterwards and said, I've got $10,000 I want to give you to, um, to do a woman's project. And so in my class, um, we discussed what kind of projects could we do that would be beneficial that we could spend $10,000 on, seeing as I usually never spend any money on them at all if I can help it. And um, so we came up with the oral history idea and we were able to furnish a lot of the people in the class with equipment, which we wouldn't otherwise have done. And uh, it was a great project for lots of reasons, but not the least of which is that many of my students have just moved on with that. How can they do research about um, church members in other countries? Well, they can do oral histories of the women, which they do. And then they've got something to say about it. Uh, they've got some firsthand documents that they wouldn't have had. So I think it's a great, great thing. It's good for the person that's interviewed. It's good for the person who does the interviewing. And I just feel very pleased that we have that great chunk of real life histories. It's just like solid gold to me every time I read it, read any of them. I just think. Well, kind of looming in the background, uh much of our whole conversation, as well as your life, of course, is the question of women in the church. And um, Mormonism is a real paradox, isn't it? I mean, we have a theology that on the one hand says you can't be exalted, a man can't be exalted without a woman, that the definition of God is a man and, and, and woman. There is a, a kind of progressivism, right, that Elizabeth Cady Stanton could applaud because Latter-day Saints complied with the two demands that she said Christianity had to fulfill if they were going to achieve equity, which was to reconstruct the story of Eve, to make her heroine rather than victim, and to find a feminine dimension to the, to, to the presiding God of the universe, both of which Latter-day Saintism right, accomplishes. And yet we've got polygamy and patriarchy and um, this, this two-tiered system. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how well you think we're doing at negotiating those tensions um, and how much progress you've seen and where you'd like to see the church go, both as a culture and as an institution in, in those regards. Well, I'm very glad you're quoting Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was my favorite early feminist and better than any of the later feminists, to my mind. I really like her. But all right, where do I feel things are? Well, I think that uh, it is very interesting that uh, for uh, now we have, we, we talk big a little bit about things. But I mean, where are the women in um, our pictures of heaven? Where are the women in our scriptures? You know, what about even, I mean, of course, it isn't anything really new, but we are new people. We should have had better scriptures by then. And so you have um, all these generations of Methuselah and Adam begatting sons and daughters over the years without a female in sight. And, uh, you know, we make a lot about mother in heaven, but uh, I mean, the evidence is so very thin that I just don't know that we can really count on it. So I tend to think that... <laughs> <laughs> One of my theories is that, um, that uh, males and females really can uh, move into being one being, uh, you know, can 
joining the two genders up in heaven. And then they have their children by parthenogenesis. You know, <laughs> because otherwise I see no explanation for it and for that scripture that is um, uh, make, make in the image of God, male and female created he them, him, it, you right, know. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. So it makes it hard to use the scriptures to uh, talk about the kind of life in heaven that we would even like to see on earth. In the church, I think, um, you know, there's been this uh, big push for um, women in the priesthood recently. It's pretty quiet right now. I don't know what's going on. But um, I think that's myself. I'm not in favor of it for lots of reasons. For one is I think that it's very good for the men to have the priesthood. And I think that if the women were given the priesthood, they would, the men would just stay home, watch the ball game. Why should they go to church if they didn't have to? My, my understanding is that there's actually good evidence that that was the, the, the historical explanation for the kind of push to, be, to, to, to make men more aware of and engaged in their priesthood callings and offices in the 19th century. Uh, and I feel the same way about saying, well, we've got to improve our doctrine. We've got to throw out this and that because uh, they're too uh, offensive to other people. I think, I, you know, I just don't think, I'm not in any position to tell the brethren what to do. That's not my job. I do have jobs in the church, which are things like, let's find some things for women to do. And so I'm all in favor of women working in the church but it can't even be officially. But for instance, I'll give you an example of what I really like. There's quite a bit of uh, effort for um, women um, to have women in the blessing circles when babies are blessed, as, as you know. And in various places, that's been successful. In my word, it is. Uh, one woman said she didn't want her baby blessed in the church unless she could be part of it. So she was made part of it. And from then on, our bishop has invited every woman to join in. And so that, but my solution, what I really want is a special ceremony and we don't need to have the priesthood to do it where the mothers bless the babies. And I say that we should have, um, say you invite over 12 of your best friends and say, this is going to be an important occasion. I want you to dress up and then have fancy refreshments and I'm going to bless my baby. And I want you to all come like the fairies, the good fairies in Sleeping Beauty, and give my baby a wish or some other thing. And we will document this event, and we will save the records and save the blessings, and they will be part of her or his heritage. That's what I like. I want to see the women just go out and do some kinds of things. I think they can. And, uh, you know, Blessings of other kinds. Uh, I certainly think, well, I've given blessings to babies. I've given blessings to sick people. And, you know, I don't do it in the name of the priesthood. I just say a blessing over them. And there's no reason we can't do that. So when people say to me, we've got to get the priesthood, I say, well, what would you do if you had the priesthood? And they'll make a list of things. I said, well, why don't you just do that anyway? <laughs> And, uh, you know, you can do pretty much. And you have to do it now. As I say, there aren't enough jobs in the church. 
I don't really have an official job at all at the moment. But if I didn't do things, I would feel very much out of it. So I organized this and that. And I'll tell you the big thing I was working on um, when the COVID business struck us down. But um, I was really, uh, had become very concerned that we never do anything with what we call Easter, you know. So, um, of course, I don't like that word, which is the fertility goddess and all that business. But I thought we really needed to do more celebrating this major event of our Christian church life. And we, we give the Christmas a whole month. And, uh, you know, what is more important, the nativity or the resurrection? And it certainly is the resurrection. So I told my bishop this one day, and he said, um, well, write me a proposal. So I wrote him a proposal, said that we needed a committee to discuss some, some things that we could do and schedule some activities for a board that would make this awareness much realer for a full month. And next time I saw him, he said, okay, call a committee and make some decisions. And he said, just keep me in the loop and let me know how much it'll cost. So of course, great bishop. And uh, so we did, we started last November, November, I guess, yeah, anyway. Started in November, we had meeting after meeting, we considered all kinds of wonderful things. And there are a lot of wonderful things that we couldn't do, but we did schedule a full month's activities. I won't go through it all, but um, you know, there's so much we could do and we just don't do it. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. My job in the church is do some of that stuff. <laughs> well, you know, Claudia, you haven't spoken much about theology, and yet, it, and yet, if I can just speculate here a minute um, about the connection between our theology and your life, it, to my mind, the, the, the most exciting, well, there are a lot of exciting things, I think, about Joseph Smith's theological innovations, but, but one of them is certainly the way that he reconstitutes the entire story of our being here in a way that makes us agents rather than just reactive beings, right? It seems to me that for the, for the bulk of Christendom, Adam and Eve commit this disastrous thing and we are all passive kind of recipients of the consequences. And we just, even words like salvation and redemption sound to me so passive, right? God has to act upon us to bring us out of this kind of morass of sin and, and depravity. And, and your whole life seems to me is about being proactive. It's about carving out niches for what you call projects. And that's why I love that word, because I think that you're really endowing it with a kind of theological weight by saying we have much greater capacity to find room to contribute and to grow and to minister instead of just waiting passively upon the the institution and the programs of the church to tell us what to do and where to go. Um, so I guess this is a lead into a question, but I hope I haven't already answered it for you. It is what I like to do. It is what I like to do. Ask me another question. All right, let me, I'll, I'll move us toward a conclusion here. Um, Many years ago, you were asked to contribute an essay to a collection called Why I Stay. Um, and I've actually read your essay three times. 
because I think it's a very uh, yeah. powerful reminder of how uneven the playing field can be for some individuals uh, or some classes. And I love the fact that you begin your essay by saying, I don't like the question, why do I stay? Because it, it presupposes kind of default tendency to just, to just throw in the towel. Um, but I guess I'd, I'd like you to just reflect a little bit on, on how you feel your particular relationship to the church has evolved. And if you find yourself in a good place of peace and um, serenity at how you've managed the challenges that you have faced personally, which I won't enumerate here, but you've enumerated many of them in your own writing and essays, some of what you refer to as horrific experiences and raw wounds. <laughs> but, um, and I think that, I think that's, I don't think that was hyperbolic. I think, you know, I think some of those things that were inflicted on you were pretty awful. Um, through the, you know, the experience of the pink issue and the resigning from exponent two and, and kindred kinds of experiences. But I guess what I'm saying is, do you look forward with hopefulness based on the trajectory of the last few years or generation? Hmm. In the church, do I look forward with hopefulness? Um, I look forward. I don't really necessarily think it's going to get better. It will get better in some ways and worse in others. That's what I expect. I don't, I don't really want to see the church become easier for everybody. So I don't want the church to just make everything easier and simpler and so on, because I don't think it will really be beneficial in the long run. Churches that have done that, that have been too anxious, you know, then they they get weaker, they don't get stronger. It's the strong churches that have um, remained that have demanding things. But I, you know, you don't have to be temple worthy with all those rules that we set up to be a good church member or to come. And I, I really think, I know of several people who have very serious smoking and drinking habits that would probably join the church if they felt they would be accepted. Why can't we accept those? I don't really think it's that great a sin to do some of those things. Can't we just be the way we would treat our children if they had those problems? Can't we just be more understanding and sympathetic and help when we can? I just don't like to see us be judgmental and tough, which uh, we often are. I mean, you know, I just think it's... <laughs> Now, the, the business about Exponent 2 is really an interesting thing, which, as you know, um, it was a situation where, although we had this thriving little periodical, which was, um, you know, certainly blameless in its content, really, I would pass, as they told us at one point, um, this would pass through correlation except for the the low writing standard that we had. <laughs> we didn't write well enough for the, to equal the friend or the <laughs> Relief Society magazine. Anyway, but, um, you know, 
that really wasn't about me, or it was only in a second, it was about Richard. And that's what I find so interesting and unfortunate about the church. See, I know that if uh, I had fought back and made a big thing out of it, eventually they would have just released him as state president. I just didn't want to be responsible for that. Yeah. But why yeah. should somebody that's married to a state president be able to, to do a, a little thing like that, which is not at all really harmful and did a lot of good after they just canceled the Relief Society magazine so we had nothing, you know. It's really, it just could be a, a lot more sympathetic yeah. about things that are not that important, I think. But, yeah. Well, I know you and Richard both interacted with um, Gene England a good bit. And it seems to me that, that there's a, a similar note that both you and Gene sounded quite often. You know, his most popular essay was his one, Why, is, Why the Church is as True as the Gospel. Desert, or Bookcraft made him change that title. Originally, it was Why the Church is Truer than the Gospel. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you've said similar things. You've referred to the church as the most perfect school. And um, your writing is just filled with these most beautiful memories and evocations of a community. That you yeah, that's very important to me. That's it. That's it where I'm concerned. And I, you know, as I get older, I think I, I see more and more the wisdom behind that focus, because when you're talking about community, you're really talking about what Joseph Smith was talking about when he talked about Zion. Right? It's about it's about learning how, how to love and minister in an ever expanding uh, set of relationships. And, and we uh, do it in a little place like San Francisco, our little ward there. You know, but we did. We had a wonderful community. Yeah, yeah. Working together. Yeah. Well, Claudia, this has been a wonderful um, time with you this morning. And if you don't know it already, just know that you've had a tremendous influence in my life for good. And I think the lives of countless thousands by your example, uh, as well as your writing and uh, the things you still have to teach us and the ways in which you still provoke us. So well, I think feel responsible for your my almighty soul, Terrell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad uh, you know the church really does give us opportunities that we uh, otherwise would not have. Yeah. yeah. As as you as you put it in one final formulation, the church is an arena for projects. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I didn't even get around to talking about my grandmother giving her blessings to people, but I won't do that. Another time, let's talk about blessings. All right, we'll come back to that another time. Claudia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for this very, you did a wonderful job. I would have been much better than if I had done it myself. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you. And good, luck. and good luck with all your projects you're still involved in. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Claudia and Terrell. And to everybody who's left a positive review of our podcast or content on any platform, we really do appreciate it. We read each review and comment and are grateful for the encouragement and for helping us to get the word out about Faith Matters. And of course, as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.